still has such an impact in our lives today because through you, because you are our living hope. You are not dead. You, you gain the victory over sin and evil and death. And, and Lord, because you are alive, you pass that victory on to us when we come to faith in you. What a, what a privilege that is. Lord, please fill our hearts with gratitude as we look at what you've done on our behalf. And I also pray that you will work in our lives even today as we open Scripture. We know that, Jesus, not only are you alive, but your word is alive. It's living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. So please, Lord, this morning, through the power of your Holy Spirit and the power of Scripture, we pray that you will speak to each one of our hearts and help us to take your words and put them into practice as well. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may be seated. Here at Frieden's Church, we are approaching a building project, and it's something I'm very excited about uh, because we're seeking to transform our building in such a way that it becomes an even more effective tool for ministry. And to help fund this project, we're seeking to raise at least $1.4 million through a capital campaign that's called Rooted in Faith, Giving to Grow. And, and it's so important that we are depending on God through this process. It's not something that we can just do through our own strength and our own energy. We want to be depending on God. And so one of the things we're trying to do through this whole process is as a congregation, as, as individuals, be seeking God in prayer. And so one of the aspects of prayer is actually coming up next Sunday in a special event that between services, rather than having any classes, at 9.25 a.m. next Sunday, we're going to have a special prayer event. And it's going to start with a human prayer chain where we link arms and pray together for God to be at work in this place. And we'll be doing this prayer chain through some key areas of the church. And after that, there's going to be six prayer stations throughout the church. And leaders will lead groups to each one of these prayer stations. And at each prayer station, there will be an opportunity to pray. There will be uh, topics to pray about just in terms of seeking God in terms of, you know, God, what are you going to do here in this area in the future? There will be diagrams and floor plans, and there will even in some places be tape on the floors and other markers to indicate, okay, this is where this room is going to be. This is what's going to be over here. This is what it's going to be looking like to help us envision what's going to take place. And this is an event for all ages. At each of the prayer stations, there will be activities for children. And also, for those who are interested, there will be supervised activities for children in Fellowship Hall during that event as well. So it's going to start next Sunday morning, 925, and then classes will resume the following Sunday. Now, as we talk about this topic of a capital campaign, I think it's so important that we understand that capital campaigns are not modern inventions. You know, a cynic might look at capital campaigns and think, well, there must have been some marketing expert or some professional consultant somewhere who was just thinking, hmm. Let's figure out some new way to, to make money and raise some funds for people. How about a capital campaign? It didn't come together like that. In fact, capital campaigns have been around for thousands upon thousands of years. And in fact, we have several of them recorded right here in the Bible. And today we're going to look at one of those capital campaigns. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Chronicles chapter 28. 1 Chronicles 28. And last week we began the series called Joyful Generosity. And we began the series by looking at God's generosity, his incredible generosity. And we looked at this generosity through the lens of John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. 
We see that God has demonstrated such incredible generosity to us. And we as his followers are called to reflect that generosity in how we live our lives in the world around us. And one of the key themes that we all need to understand as we're going through the series is that joyful generosity is a form of worship. It's truly a form of worship. And that's what we're going to see today. This passage we're looking at is, to my, in my mind, one of the most remarkable passages in the Bible. It's one that, that for years I've, I've really loved just reading, not, not so much because of the stewardship and giving aspect, but because of the worship aspect of this passage. And I've really enjoyed even this last week studying the passage in preparation for the day. We'll look at it again next week as well. But what we're going to see in this passage is how deeply connected the themes of joy and generosity and worship are with one another. Now, before we dive in, let me give you a bit of background because, um, I mean, for many of us, we hear First Chronicles and we're like, where is that? And what is that? What's going on there? So let me give you some background. There was a king named King David who was one of the most prominent kings, perhaps the most prominent king in Israel's history. And here in First Chronicles 28 and 29, King David is near the end of his life. And God has laid on his heart a calling to build a temple in Jerusalem to help people worship God faithfully. And so King David, um, as he's working through this process with God, he gathers people from all around Israel, especially the, the key leaders of Israel, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them, and he gathers around them. And let me read for us what he says to them. First Chronicles 28, picking up in verse 2. And it says, Then King David rose to his feet and said, Hear me, my brothers and my people. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and for the footstool of our God. And I made preparations for building. But God said to me, You may not build a house for my name, for you are a man of war and have shed blood. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me from all my father's house to be king over Israel forever. For he chose Judah as leader. And in the house of Judah, my father's house, and among my father's sons, he took pleasure in me to make me king over all Israel. And of all my sons, for the Lord has given me many sons, he has chosen Solomon, my son, to sit on the throne of the kingdom of the Lord over Israel. He said to me, It is Solomon your son who shall build my house and my courts. For I have chosen him to be my son, and I will be his father. I will establish his kingdom forever if he continues strong in keeping my commandments and my rules as he is today. Now therefore, in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God, that you may possess this good land and leave it for an inheritance to your children after you forever. And so what we see in this passage is a plan to build the temple. Now, originally it was King David who wanted to build the temple himself, but God made it very clear that he had designated Solomon, not David, to build the temple. Solomon was David's son, and the reasoning that God used was that, that David was a man of war, that he had shed much blood through all of his battles through the years, and God wanted this temple to be built by a man of peace. And so David's son Solomon, who would be the next king, was designated to be the one to build the temple. But David did not take a back seat in the process. He made a lot of preparations to help build the temple. 
And it's very clear that David here has a long-term perspective. He's very focused, even though he himself is near the end of his life, he's very focused on how can he help the people of Israel worship God faithfully in future generations when he is gone. And, and in fact, down in verse 8 that we just read, it says, Now therefore in the sight of all Israel, the assembly of the Lord, and in the hearing of our God, observe and seek out all the commandments of the Lord your God. So he's telling people, keep faithful to God that you may possess this good land and leave it as an inheritance to your children after you forever. So we see here that David is very passionate about Israel's worship of God in the future. He wants Israel to remain faithful to God. And and through the rest of this chapter, he's commissioning Solomon, his son, to lead Israel faithfully, to be faithful to God. And he's also giving Solomon instructions for how to build the temple. Now, jumping ahead to uh, one of the final verses in this chapter, verse 20, it says, Then David said to Solomon, his son, Be strong and courageous and do it. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. For the Lord God, even my God, is with you. He will not leave you or forsake you until all the work for the service of the house of the Lord is finished. And so what we see there is that where God calls, God provides. David, as a father, is speaking to Solomon, saying, Solomon, be courageous. God has called you to this task. He has called you to lead Israel. He's called you to build a temple. And where God calls, he will provide. He he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. So, So don't be afraid of what God's calling you to. Instead, trust him. And so that that leads us to the end of chapter 28. I want to move on now to 29, which is our main focus for today. And it's chapter 29 of 1 Chronicles that I find just absolutely remarkable. And we'll see half of it this week and half of it next week. So let's move on. Look with me to um, 1 Chronicles 29, verse 1. It says, And David the king said to all the assembly, Solomon my son, whom alone God has chosen, is young. And inexperienced, and the work is great, for the palace will not be for man, but for the Lord God. And this last phrase in verse 1 points to the significance of the undertaking ahead of them. That this palace, which is a reference to the temple, it's not for man, it's for God. And that's why it's so significant that, you know what, humans will certainly benefit from the ministry of the temple. But ultimately, the temple is designed to serve God's purposes and to be for God's glory. So it is a tremendous undertaking that's ahead of them. Now let's move on to this passage, picking up in verse 2. We see what David's doing to help make preparations. It says, So I have provided for the house of my God, so far as I was able, the gold for the things of gold, the silver for the things of silver, and bronze for the things of bronze, and iron for the things of iron, and wood for the things of wood. Besides great quantities of onyx and stones for setting, and timony, colored stones, all sorts of precious stones and marble. Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. Three thousand talents of gold, of the gold of Ophir, and seven thousand talents of refined silver for overlaying the walls of the house. And for all the work to be done by craftsmen, gold for the things of gold, and silver for the things of silver. And so what I just read here is the beginning of people giving generously 
to build the temple. They're giving generously to, to give the temple, and it starts with King David, and he's giving incredibly generously and abundantly. Now, there's a key phrase at the end of verse 2 I want to point out where, where David says that, that I have provided for the house of my God so far as I was able. So far as I was able, King David had a lot of resources, and he gave very abundantly. I mean, the amounts of money and resources referenced in this passage is enormous. But the scope of the project of building the temple was beyond even what King David himself could fund. But he says, I gave abundantly as far as I was able. And one of the things this points out is that different people have different capacities financially for what they can give. I mean, some people are, are quite wealthy, and they can give a lot because they have a very high giving capacity because of their financial status. For others, you know what? They have very limited financial resources. And so their giving capacity is much smaller. Even though they may want to be able to give a whole lot, their giving capacity is relatively small. Now, for others, they're already being so incredibly generous with what they have that their margin for giving anything more is little to none because they're already giving so generously. And so we have to recognize different people have different giving capacities. And King David kind of references that when he says, I I gave as much as I was able. But there are two important things to keep in mind as we consider this fact that different people have different capacities for what they can give. One thing is that all contributions whether it's to the temple or to the Freedom's Building Project, all contributions make a difference, no matter how large and no matter how small. I mean, I think about Freedom's Building Project coming up. Some people may have the financial means to fund the entire construction of the elevator or perhaps even the entire construction of the addition on the south end of the church. Some people may have that level of means. For others, we don't have that type of means financially. We, we can't fund quite as much. And for some, their ability may mean that they can fund a toilet. You know what? Toilets, they're oftentimes underappreciated unless they don't work. But they will be incredibly useful for years and years to come for the future of the church. And some of our giving will go to fund the toilet. And if you want to think about giving to something more glamorous than a toilet, think, you know what, some people, even if they aren't able to give much, Maybe you'll fund a special toy down in the nursery. That children, after they come into Frieden's nursery, they go home and they tell their parents, there's this toy, I was so excited, I want to go back next week and play with it again. You may be able to fund one of those toys. Or maybe it's a coffee carafe out near the entryway where when newcomers come, they get coffee from that carafe and that helps them feel welcome here. Or maybe it's, maybe it's that the contribution that you make helps purchase comfortable chairs for Fellowship Hall and for the classrooms, which this church has desperately needed for many years. You know, whether small or large, all contributions are valuable and make a difference. So that's one important thing to keep in mind. Another important thing is that God is not looking so much at the amount that we give. What he's looking for is the right heart in the process, a heart of worship of him, a heart that's devoted to him. There's a fascinating story over in Luke chapter 21. Jesus actually is in the temple. Luke 21, 1 through 4, it says, Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. 
And he saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, truly I tell you, this poor widow is put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. And so what we see here is joyful generosity. It's that God is not looking so much directly at the amount that we give. Because again, he recognizes different people's giving capacity is very different based on all kinds of different circumstances. He's looking not so much at the amount, but he's looking at the heart behind it. A heart of worship, a heart of joyful generosity. Even though the the amount of generosity looks different, he's looking for that heart that is devoted to him and is worshiping him. And so coming back to this passage, we see that King David, he gave first to this capital campaign. And he gave generously, he gave sacrificially, and he gave joyfully. I mean, the generous, abundant part is very clear. He's giving more than even other wealthy people back then could even fathom because he was incredibly wealthy. So he gave very generously and abundantly, but he also gave sacrificially. He gave sacrificially. Look with me up to verse 3 here. There's something that is easy to miss, but it's very important. King David says, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. So there's this phrase that says, I have a treasure of my own gold and silver. Uh, Some of your versions of the Bible might say a personal treasure. And this phrase, a treasure of my own or a personal treasure, refers, it's a Hebrew word that refers to basically a nest egg. It's money that a king or a wealthy person would set aside. It's their, their, their fallback plan. That if there's a crisis, if things go wrong, that they can fall back on that money. It's kind of like the rainy day fund. Um, it's their, their security blanket financially. King David says, you know, I had this security blanket. I had this nest egg. But out of my devotion to God, I gave it to help build the temple. And that is sacrificial giving. I mean, you think about it. That's a lot of money that he's giving. He's giving his nest egg to help build the temple. What this means is that after he gave that, after he gave all the money that he gave, his net worth has dropped significantly. It means that he no longer has as much of a security blanket financially. It means, I mean, just in practical sense, he doesn't have as much to give to his children and grandchildren in the future which is a definite sacrifice. No one said that that generosity is not sacrificial. And David was willing to sacrifice because he had a much greater vision than merely spending money on himself or on his family. He had a vision for expanding the kingdom of God and investing in things that matter in the generations to come and things that matter in light of eternity. So he gave generously and he gave sacrificially. And this points to the fact that when we are generous that there's a definite cost and sacrifice for us as well. That if we are are giving sacrificially, it may mean that, that, you know what, we can't take as many vacations as we might otherwise. It may mean that we can't afford as nice of a car or as nice of a house. There are genuine sacrifices when it comes to generosity. I mean, if you tithe, and a tithe is giving 10% of your income to God's work, if you tithe, it will make a noticeable difference 
on your standard of living or on the amount of money you have in your bank account or in investments. There is a genuine sacrifice that comes with generosity. But when we see clearly what generosity and stewardship is about biblically, we see, you know what, it's worth that. It's worth that because there is a much greater treasure that we are pursuing than simply earthly treasures. We are pursuing a treasure in heaven, a treasure that lasts for eternity, not just that fades after a few years here on this earth. And so what we see here is King David with joyful, generous, and sacrificial generosity. Now, as we come through this passage, we do have to recognize that King David is not able to fund the entire process of building the temple himself. I mean, construction is expensive. It is now. It was then. And so David calls others to join in supporting this building project. Remember, it's a capital campaign, not a modern invention. This is thousands of years ago. But David calls others now to help contribute to the building project. Pick, with, uh, pick up with me in uh, chapter five, or verse 5 of 1 Chronicles 29. King David says, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself today to the Lord? Then the leaders of the fathers' houses made their freewill offerings, as did also the leaders of the tribes, the commanders of the thousands and of the hundreds, and the officers over the king's work. They gave for the service of the house of God 5,000 talents and 10,000 derricks of gold, 10,000 talents of silver, 18,000 talents of bronze, and 100,000 talents of iron. And whoever had precious stones gave them to the treasury of the house of the Lord in the care of Jehael the Gershonite. And so what we see here is that Israel's leaders gave generous free will offerings. It lists free will offerings here. Let me explain what a free will offering is. Back in the ancient Israel, there were two, uh, two financial obligations that Israelites had in addition to supporting their family. One was the tithe. A tithe, again, was giving 10% of your income, 10% of your resources for God's work. And the second financial obligation on top of the tithe, and I mean, not to mention caring for your family, is the tax. And a tax was necessary, it was, it was an obligation to help support the work of the kingdom. So you have the tithe and the tax, those were obligations. But here you have a free will offering. And a free will offering is over and above the tithe, over and above the tax. That's why it's called a free will offering. It's to be given freely and willingly. And this idea of a free will offering of, of over and above our regular giving is the idea behind our capital campaign here at the church as well. Let me read for you. Um, we have a commitment card that you will be receiving sometime in, in the upcoming weeks, uh, depending on when you would like it. Um, but let me read to you uh, what's on the back of this commitment card to help us understand the context here. It says, please keep the following in mind as you consider your commitments. This commitment is from now until December of 2021. Gifts can be given weekly, monthly, quarterly, or annually. The second bullet point says, this commitment is over and above my slash our regular giving. Third bullet point, this commitment will be treated with the same level of confidentiality as all other giving to Freedom's Church. And fourth, this commitment is not binding in the event that my slash our financial situation changes. Now, it's all helpful information back here. 
But the key point why I'm reading this is the second bullet point. That this commitment is over and above my regular giving. It's a free will offering. We ask that, you know, if you're already supporting the ministry of Freedom's Church, financially continue to do that. But this is a free will offering to the capital campaign over and above what you're currently giving. And, and as I said, it's kind of your choice on when you receive this commitment card. There's an early commitment period for people kind of like King David and the leaders here who are giving early in the process to help jumpstart the campaign. And if you would like to be part of this early commitment process to receive a commitment card sometime in the next couple of weeks, on your connection card in the back, there's a box you can check to be contacted about the early commitment process. You can check that box, and then someone will contact you to to get this into your hands sometime in the next couple of weeks to be part of the early commitment period. But then the whole congregation will be able to receive a commitment card in mid-November. And everyone will be asked to prayerfully consider how God is calling them to support his work through what he's doing here at Freedom's, especially through the building project. But keep in mind, it's this idea of a free will offering. Now I want to jump to the end of this passage, verse 9. And this is where it starts to me to get especially interesting. Um, and then we'll get into it more next week. But verse 9. Then the people rejoiced because they had given willingly. For with a whole heart they had offered freely to the Lord, David the king also rejoiced greatly. So first David gave, and then the leaders gave, and now all the people are giving with joyful generosity. And that's really what strikes me here in this verse, and especially later in this passage that we'll see next week, is this idea of joy. They're not giving out of obligation. They're not giving out of pressure. They're not giving through gritted teeth, reluctantly, uh, just kind of regretting what they will miss in the future because they're giving rather than keeping it for themselves. They're giving joyfully. I mean, look at verse 9. The people rejoiced. They had given willingly. They gave with a whole heart. They had offered freely to the Lord. And it says, King David also rejoiced greatly. There is such great joy. And and this is a picture of what happens when people come together with camaraderie, pursuing a project for the glory of God. They experience such joy as they do it together and see God work through them. We have to understand that the way that God provides, where God calls, he will provide. The way that God provides is through men and women worshiping him through joyful generosity. So we see here a beautiful picture of worship and of joyful generosity. Now, now there's a, a big question that we've not yet answered in this passage. You may be wondering, what in the world is that question? And that's an appropriate question to ask because I haven't raised the question yet. But the question is this. Why in the world would they give so generously and so sacrificially? What, what would motivate them to do that? Because again, it is genuinely sacrificial. Our natural human instinct is to be at least somewhat selfish. You know, maybe give a little to help others. It makes us feel good. It does help others. But our natural human instinct is to keep most of it for ourselves. So what would motivate King David and these Israelites to give so generously and so sacrificially is something that may not directly benefit only them. What would motivate them to do this? 
Well, the key is right here in front of us. Look with me to verse 5. King David asks all the people gathered there. He says, Who then will offer willingly, consecrating himself to the Lord today? He's asking us of all the people, Who will you consecrate yourself today to the Lord? Now, this term consecration is not something that we use very much in today's world. Basically, what it means is to set something apart for God's purposes and for God's glory. I mean, I shared earlier in the children's message. It's kind of like my toothbrush is consecrated only for the purposes of brushing my teeth. We aren't going to be using it for a whole lot of other things. It's consecrated for brushing my teeth. The plate, it's consecrated for, for being kept safe and used in special occasions as a plate. We're not going to use it as a frisbee. We're not going to use it to dig in the sandbox. We're not going to use it for target practice. It has a specific purpose for which it's set apart. When something is consecrated to God, it is set apart for God's purposes and for his glory. Back in ancient Israel, for instance, priests were consecrated for God. They were set apart for his purposes and for his glory. That was their calling. That was their vocation. Back when you had the tabernacle or when the temple was built, items that were used in the tabernacle or temple, they were consecrated. They were set apart exclusively for the purposes in the tabernacle or temple, for God's purposes and for his glory. And so the crazy thing to keep in mind here is that King David is asking, who of you? I mean, talking essentially to the whole population of Israel, who will consecrate themselves to the Lord today? Who will set themselves apart? And this is a call to really wholehearted surrender and worship of God. It's a call to people saying, you know what? If you consecrate yourself to God, saying, God, I am yours. Do with me what you will. I surrender to you, God, what I have and what I am, whether it's my money or my skills or my talents or my time or my relationships or my future, my identity, it's all yours. Do with me what you will. That is what it means to be consecrated to the Lord. So David asks, will you consecrate yourself today to the Lord? And this is a concept that is not just back in 1 Chronicles 29. It's not something that's just stuck in the Old Testament and God gives us more leeway today to do whatever we want. I mean, I think of Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Romans 12, 1, it's the Apostle Paul in the New Testament saying, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So what we see is God calls us all to be consecrated to him, to lay our lives down before him in worship, to say, God, I am yours. Do with me what you want. So we have the question, will you consecrate yourself today to the Lord? And it was this idea of just laying ourselves before God. That's what motivated this joyful generosity. That's what motivated people to say, you know what? All I have, it's not really mine anyway. So I'm going to give it to God. Even though it does mean I have less to spend in myself, I'm going to give it to God's purposes. I mean, you look back to verse 3 with King David's motivation where he said, Moreover, in addition to all that I have provided for the holy house, I have given a treasure of my own gold and silver. And because of my devotion to the house of my God, I give it to the house of my God. What was his motivation for giving his nest egg to 
the building of the temple? His devotion to God. He had consecrated himself to God. And in that worship, that devotion to God, he was willing to give joyfully and generously. And so I hope that from this passage you can see with more clarity that that joyful generosity really is a form of worship. Joy, generosity, and worship are are all intertwined with each other. So let's worship God and let's give generously, not just to the capital campaign. I mean, that's, that's, I mean the, the number attached to it financially seems big, kind of daunting sometimes. It's doable, but it's big. But the capital campaign, the big scheme of things, is just one little part of living with joyful generosity. Well, let's be joyfully generous in all parts of our life, not just with our money, but with our talents and with our time as well. And use these things as we're joyfully generous to invest in things that matter in light of eternity. There's a musical that, that I like. It's called Hamilton. Um, and near the end of Hamilton, the, the, the key figure, Alexander Hamilton, is reflecting and pondering the lasting impact of his life. And he says, legacy. What is a legacy? It's planting seeds in a garden you never get to see. So we have this idea of legacy. And the question is, what type of legacy do we want to leave? What type of legacy do we want to leave? The the best type of legacy is a legacy that helps future generations grow as followers of Jesus. And the way that we prepare ourselves to leave that type of legacy is one, by worshiping God wholeheartedly ourselves and then giving generously and joyfully in the name of the Lord. Again, not just of our money, but also of our time and talents and investing these things in in what matters in the light of eternity, investing these things in the kingdom of God. Because as, referring to a movie now, as it says in Gladiator, it says what we do in life echoes in eternity. What we do in life echoes in eternity. We are eternal beings. And we have the opportunity to invest in things, particularly in people's lives, to help them grow for eternity, to change eternity. And so the question is, what type of echo do you want to have? You want to have a deep, resounding echo, meaning that you invested heavily in the things that matter in life eternity, or just a hollow, empty echo, meaning that you primarily focused on things of this earth. I mean, this, this idea of what we do in life echoes in eternity is, uh, for years, especially early in my Christian life, was, was one of the driving passions. It was one of the things that, that motivated me to, to really devote myself wholly to God and invest in the things that truly matter in light of eternity. Now, in just a moment, um, as the ushers take the offering, we're going to be singing a, a special, it's a new song to Freedens. It's called Set Apart. At first, the worship team will sing it, and as, as you learn it, it's pretty easy to learn. You can uh, join in. Let me read some of the lyrics. Uh, it says, Set apart for our God above. Set apart for the one we love. Set apart for your glory. We are yours. Everything for you alone, everything to make you known, set apart for your glory, we are yours. So as the worship team sings this song, and then later as we join in, as you're ready, I want to encourage you, especially as you're listening to these lyrics, to reflect on them and use this as a time to talk with God and determining in your heart, will you consecrate yourself today 
to the Lord. Our Father, we thank you that you are a God who welcomes us into your presence. That through you we can have eternal hope. Through you we can have eternal life. And through you we can live with a purpose that matters in life of eternity. Lord, thank you that, that our lives and the sum total of what we accomplish in our lives is not stuck just on this earthly realm. We thank you that we have the privilege and the opportunity to invest in things that matter in life of eternity. And so, Lord, I pray that you will do a work in our hearts. First and foremost, just helping us to bow down to you, to worship you with wholehearted devotion, to see with greater clarity how how awe-inspiring you really are, how holy you are, how gracious you are, how worthy of praise you are. And Lord, may everything else we do in our lives flow from that. But in light of your mercy, may we offer our bodies and our lives to you as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.